Welcome to the BJ360 October podcast. My name is Sarah Gill, an orthopedic trauma consultant at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our new and developing monthly podcast series. We've got an alternating program between Journal Club episodes that focus on the latest BJ360 contents and roundtable discussions on topics affecting our everyday trauma and orthopedic practice. And that's where, in fact, we are this month. And we are focusing on training training in a COVID climate, which is a literary reference that I'm sure needs no explaining to our uh, well-cultured orthopedic community. This month I'm joined um, by two colleagues from different regions. Tom Harding is an SD5 in the east of Scotland rotation and he is also the Scottish Boater Rep. And James Tomlinson, consultant, spinal surgeon and academic and educational TPD in the Yorkshire region, recently appointed as Deputy Director to the Faculty of Surgical Trainers. So good evening Tom and James. So guys, we're going to kick off. Um, this is a much discussed topic, I think, across the UK, and that is training during COVID. It's been a time of disruption, really, to usual practice and usual training practice. There's been disruption of elective clinics and theatre lists, changes in rotors, very much in the first initial wave, a restriction of trainee access to theatre. And all of that has really disrupted the changes to the normal consultant trainer partnerships or workings of the normal firm, however it is in your unit. So Tom, as a trainee in, in the sort of central period of training, that must be, well, the last seven months must have been pretty atypical. Yeah, it's been a very difficult six months for all trainees at, at all stages of training. I think it's, it's affected trainees at different stages of training in different ways and um, obviously the core trainees the st3s and st4s have missed out on vital opportunities and often been the first to be redeployed elsewhere the people in the middle ground probably less impacted but still some st4s st5s st6s redeployed but also a loss of those essential placements like the your arthroplasty placements to get those vital indicative numbers and then the st7s st8s I've suffered from cancelled examinations, but also uh, that lack of theatre exposure. So I think there's a lot of anxiety amongst the trainees as a whole, and it's been a very difficult time. I think orthopedics is probably one of the specialties that's been hit, hit hardest in terms of the impact on training. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary, actually, Tom, of the sort of, as you say, actually, the sort of the stratification of challenges to trainees, which isn't uniform. It's actually is relating to their time of uh, their period of training, as it were. And I completely get what you're saying, actually. We have a huge elective practice. You know, we're a very big, very busy surgical department with, as I say, big elective practice. And therefore, of course, it, it has. James, to come to you, this would be a good time to actually sort of ask you for maybe a bit of a more uh, central sort of discourse on this. I know that you've been inundated with meetings, mostly Zoom meetings over the last few months. Yeah, I think... The first thing I would say, actually, that I have to say on behalf of everyone is I think a big thank you should go to the trainees, that a lot of trainees were redeployed at very short notice and just got on with it and did what was asked. And I think that deserves a lot of recognition. It's very interesting. I was at a School of Surgery board meeting yesterday, and the theme that came out across all of surgical training in Yorkshire is there's a lot of, I don't know if this is the right word, anxiety amongst trainees about the lack of clarity at the moment, both of... Mm -hmm when are we going to get back to normal and when we do get back to normal how do we get people back to where they should be i think one of the really big challenges when you speak to people around the uk and even around your own region is there's variation from trust to trust there's variation from specialty to specialty there's variation from region to region in our region we had some trusts who've done pretty much no elective work for six months 
And we also have trusts who probably for two or three months now have been almost back to 100% elective capacity. And I think we've more or less got everything in between as well. And so there's a real challenge that there is no real answer because it's almost bespoke solutions for yeah i think on a training by training basis i think that's a real point so there were a few things that came out common themes that came out from things that both of you said there one was anxiety another was redeployment and then a third thing you said there was about inequity james and i think that's one of the the, the really strong themes that i wanted to discuss this evening so if we take anxiety first actually i think that is, you know, to be expected in a time of great uncertainty. But I suppose what we're saying is that that anxiety is probably fueled by the inequity. And as you say, you know, this, I don't know, it's a bit of a frustrating phrase, the new normal, because I think it's said a bit tongue in cheek because no one really knows what that is. So if we talk about, do you think that essentially a lot of the anxiety that trainees and, and probably trainers, I think as well, have in this time, maybe that could be addressed with more central guidance and at least articulation of the challenges um, that, we've, that we're facing. Yeah, I think in fairness to HEE and the JCST, there has been pretty good attempts at mm-hmm. communication. And I think it's been interesting as a TPD that, if anything, the communication, I think both of those organisations have used social media really effectively. And at times we've had trainees coming up to us saying, oh, what about this latest HE update? And we're saying, well, hang on a minute, we, <laughs> we haven't got the email yet through official channels and they've heard it on social media before we know about it. But I think that's a really good thing. I suppose the challenge is that certainly the informal discussion seems very much we can't kind of let people through the end of training and just lower the standard because the standards are there because that's what we think the benchmark is. Yep. But equally we can't extend kind of 80% of trainees training time all of a sudden because that creates issues in terms of people coming off the top for the job market, people coming in the bottom in recruitment, partly just people's plans because by the time you're in ST8 and a final year trainee, there's a lot of things in terms of personal life built around that. And I think that's the big challenge, I would say. From a TPD perspective, that is the big challenge, the uncertainty and kind of perception of lack of control over your own destiny. I don't know what you think, Tom. I think that is a big issue of that not knowing what's around the corner. When am I going to be, if am I going to be redeployed? Am I going to miss out on my training and what's going to happen? Um, and I think that's across the board. People just don't know. And I don't think anybody really knows what is around the corner. But I think we just need to work out how we're going to catch up at the end of this and how we're going to make the most of the training opportunities that are there. Yeah, do you know, I was going to say, I I think you're exactly right, Tom. And you know what, I think it's really difficult to make plans based on a COVID environment where we have to be so responsive and reactive to what the service needs to provide service to patients. And I think maybe our time would be really maybe better spent looking at how we can regionally maximise training once we've got a green light again, you know, so that we're really getting as much as we can from those opportunities once they're up and running. We said we're going to talk about deployment. Tom... What are your feelings about redeployment? And redeployment can take lots of different forms. It might be running the minor injuries unit. It might be staffing COVID medical wards. It might be going to A&E. What's yours and what do you think the trainee perspective of it is? I think no one's against it in the extreme. Uh, So when there's extreme circumstances, such as we see uh, in in the Lombardy region, uh, at the start of, right at the start of COVID, we had orthopedic surgeons running ventilators and things because they just didn't have the numbers on the ground. I think there's a lot of 
angst about being redeployed early. Uh, and I think there's a lot of places, and there's, I get a lot of feedback from speaking to people on BOTA. In some regions, people have redeployed very early when they're not really required. And there's a, almost a, I've been redeployed to, to fill a rotor gap somewhere else. I think there's a bit of anger and frustration in those scenarios. But I think we shouldn't be really redeploying orthopedic trainees to places where they don't have the capabilities to provide a service. So redeploying to a ICU to run a ventilator is, is not appropriate, but you might be appropriate to go there to assist turning patients and things like that. But yeah. again, in the extreme circumstances, yeah. I think we need to have quite strict uh, and written down guidelines of when it is appropriate to redeploy people from their, their specialty uh, and in what circumstances that, that is to happen to protect trainees, to make sure people don't get redeployed early and lose their training. I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, your doctor's first, so you go absolutely where is needed, but it's trying to also remember that trainees are in training, they have training needs, and that has to be balanced. James, do you think this, you know, we sort of had the first wave, we're maybe at the beginning of a second wave, and that's going to combine with sort of winter bed pressures and the flu, etc. Do you think we will have a more proportioned response? Do you think it'll be different if it happens again? I hope so, but uh, <laughs> I think it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I suppose the biggest challenge at the moment is this is still not a well understood disease and the discussion at the moment seems to be a lot of is actually because of some of the mitigation strategies are we going to see a slightly different pattern in terms of admissions and severity of disease this time so may there be a reduction in the kind of severity of pressure on services but it, it seems like at the moment we're still the kind of that unknown period of where things haven't quite become clear how it's all going to pan out and again it seems there's quite marked regional variation as well that there are some parts of the country where the actually admissions are still very low and disease prevalence is still very low and orthopedic trainees in those parts of the country probably haven't needed to change and equally some areas are in extremis already and again that's going to create huge disparities in the kind of training picture nationally yeah that's fair so one of the things we talked about was trying to get the most out of training. And I was particularly talking about post-COVID, you know, when we can be a bit more predictable about the opportunities and plan for those well. But the variation across the country is very evident uh, in terms of it unequally affecting parts, unequally affecting jobs in terms of trauma versus elective, etc. But Tom, we were discussing recently about what has been a very proactive change in your trauma rotor in um, the east of Scotland, mostly Ninewells Hospital in Dundee, to really try and maximise um, the operative experience that trainees have had during COVID. And I would start off by saying that Tom and I was discussing this previously, and through this, in the last few months, the trainees have been able to get their indicative numbers so what would be 300 cases a year on track to get the 300 cases a year through these changes. So can you tell us a bit about that, Tom, and how you've achieved that? Yeah, so in Tayside, with a little bit of background on how we run the rotor, is it's, um, it's a two-tier system. So basically, SHO grade is ST1s through to 4s, and then and that's a junior tier, and a senior tier is ST5s through to 8. The key change we made, it came from the consultants top-down, was to switch to a trauma team-based uh, pattern of working. And that came out of the COVID era where we split into three different teams. Now we work in four different teams. Each team has three consultants. Each team's got two senior registrars and two junior registrars. And the way we uh, able, are able to maximise our training 
in that is that all all trauma activity happens in that one week or one in four weeks mm -hmm. and all elective activity happens outside of that so all of our on calls for the junior guys which do the night shifts and the um holding the the bleep all happen in that one week and the senior guys do their 24-hour on calls also during that week but essentially it, we've made things a lot more flexible but it means that the junior guys don't miss their consultant's elective practice due to night shifts and out of hours on call working and oh. those uh, zero days and we've made zero days flexible we managed to achieve the same eight weeks compared to last year a 91 percent increase in the juniors access to theater sessions <laughs> and even the seniors have a 13 percent increase in their access to theater sessions despite a 65 percent elective capacity at present and really the biggest thing we changed was we made juniors and seniors in trauma theater together yeah um, always a junior and always a senior nine to five uh, monday to friday and that's maximizing the training opportunity for both of those uh, training groups yeah so that presumably means that you know the juniors are getting good access to still doing the hemiarthroplasties, the dhs's you know the something that is grade appropriate and it sort of increases the exposure of the senior guys to the more senior trauma you know the periarticular stuff the periprosthetic maybe the pelvic work etc i mean that's a big change to the rotor and that's very that's a sort of very proactive change i would say which is just really interesting to hear about james your thoughts on that sort of with a tpe hat on this is obviously one region one unit but it's interesting to hear yeah i think this is the key isn't it is trying to be flexible and i think one of the great difficulties is a lot of this stuff doesn't get shared and, and it's frustrating that this is the kind of work that you don't always hear about at the national meetings and things that actually some often you kind of sit in an apartment and think actually we need to try and rework things here and improve the opportunities and eventually you hear on the grapevine that somebody somewhere has already done it and they're more than happy to share what they've done and they're learning it's just you didn't know they did it and it, i guess the the key really is having local solutions that again each department's just so different whether you're in an mtc whether you're in a dgh and trying to flex and adapt for both what trainings you've got the seniority what lower level core training is or whether you've got AMPs on that tier of the rotor. But I think there is a pressure going forwards that as we start to return to normal, I think we need to be pretty creative with looking at how we maximize opportunities while yes, there's a service to deliver and we have to ensure safe patient care, but we also, I would say have a duty to the trainees who've stepped up when required to help during COVID. Well, we have a duty to them now to step up and kind of accelerate their training and pay back that debt that they've given to the service. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of uh, looking at it. A good way of, uh, it's well articulated. I think I really like what you've done, Tom, because I think it's really ambitious. It's like there's an issue, there's a problem. And rather than being a slave to that, it's saying, well, actually, we can do better. And I really like that idea it's something i've thought about moving away from operative stuff towards the outpatient department my practice is purely trauma so you know my clinical my outpatient sorry stuff is really fracture clinics and it we we really had to change because of patient needs we really had to change the way we did that we moved to a lot more telephone review we saw people face to face much more on a needs base rather than i'd like to see you at three months to get an x-ray just so that i can feel better about that and what it did was it meant that we could really run a more consultant delivered service and it's making me think once we're back to having trainees back in the clinics more of the time can we 
train better in the outpatient department? Can we move the focus away from service provision for trainees, which I think is the case in some units, more towards closely supervised teaching and, and, and really getting more educational benefit from that? Tom, your thoughts about that as a trainee, when you're going through your training, there's always things you think you, you could do differently. Any thoughts about the, the outpatient clinic? Uh, well, you mentioned there that we've switched to sort of telephone clinics and, and things. And you said when we go back to normal training, we should think about how we get the trainees back in the clinic. I think the telephone clinics still present an opportunity for trainees to learn this new way of consulting patients and new way of delivering a service. I think that if you're doing something virtually, there's no reason why someone else can't log into that virtual, virtual consultation and even the trainee leading that virtual consultation having the their supervisor watching them do it yeah. um, to critique them and go through things um, I think that's useful and I think that's, that's another opportunity that can be made useful and that's something locally that we've been able to do yeah so you're saying don't shield the trainees from that invite them in to this way of consulting into this new practice moving away from the outpatient clinic one of the things i wanted to discuss with you guys because i think this has changed a lot over the last few months is is postgraduate teaching and sort of academic activities james you and i were discussing recently and in fact you just come off or i think you, that, that day you just had several zoom teaching sessions with trainees Tom, I know uh, you guys in the east of Scotland have gone to an online PGT over the last few months, and, and we've done the same in, in the West. So what's the feedback from that? What's your experience of that? Do you think it's got benefits going forward? Um, I was going to say it, there's certain benefits to it. We've seen a massive increase in the consultant uptake and consultant input to uh, postgraduate training locally. And even nationally, you look at the number of the wealth of uh, resource that is out there or from consultants across the place. I think it can't fully replace postgraduate training in the uh, traditional sense. I uh, can't teach practical skills or examination skills through it, but I certainly think it has a role moving forward. The, other, the only other thing I would say is they had a really good uptake mm. in the sort of height of lockdown, but I think when people get their lives back, whether doing teaching in the evenings, we need to have a way of accrediting that as work and work time yeah uh, rather than just uh, expecting people to use their spare time which is also already scarce yeah i've got a feeling about that but james i'll come to you first off the back of what tom was saying i do think virtual teaching has a role i think the key aspect is it's a tool and like everything it it's the right tool for the right job i think thinking about our region we sometimes have trainees driving two hours to teaching on a Friday afternoon. And so that's madness, both in terms of actually by the time you get there, you're not in a useful state of mind to engage in the teaching. And also it's just not good from a safety point of view that you're driving in a rush worrying about trying to get there. So I think accessibility is really good. Um, it's also been mentioned another great bonus is in theory, you can get speakers from all over the world if you want, or you can pull resources and say, actually, you know, someone from the US is going to give a talk why don't we invite another region to join us? Then we've got a bigger audience and it, and it makes them feel it's worthwhile. I think the big challenge we've found is that regional teaching for a lot of trainees, it's more than just teaching. It's kind of where you come together as a community and you kind of see your friends, chat about things, catch up with people, maybe catch up with trainers about different things. The TPDs can drop in and people can kind of have a quiet word in the corridor over a coffee. Yeah. And the stuff that happens around the fringe is much harder on an online platform and, and if anything maybe doesn't happen yeah 
And I think the comment about evenings is absolutely, I know a couple of people who've run webinar series and they've commented that attendance in the last couple of months has really, really dropped. And maybe there's a role for a bit more of a coordinated national picture of kind of revision series webinars and, you know, trying yeah. to tailor it again, going back to Tom's point of specific trainees of actually the pre-exam guys want something quite exam focused, whereas like a national ST3 is how to be an orthopedic reg webinar series will probably yeah. be equally popular but for a very different group yeah we've all touched on that and it's something that's really occurred to me especially to begin with there was this real thirst for you know where we've got reduced access to clinical learning um, opportunities really want to maximize in terms of the academic stuff in terms of the postgraduate teaching programs and things but i had great concerns about that because i think avoiding driving as you say two hours on a friday um, or pre-nights, post-nights, et cetera, those things. Yeah. I think it was a really good thing in the same that, you know, loads of people then started working from home and it was like, well, why did I need to go into the office? I think a lot of PGT can happen um, on online platforms. But what I was a bit concerned about was this bleed through effect of suddenly you, people are never off. It's like on Tuesday night, we've got a seminar from so-and-so. On Thursday night, we've got a talk from so-and-so. And I think that there was this sort of loss of, work and not work time and i think going forward that is not a good thing and i think some regulation of that is important you were making a point there james about the um coordination of these things and you know i really wanted to ask you guys about this in terms of the coordination of teaching opportunities and sort of tailoring teaching opportunities so that trainees can access the things that they need because this is really something that's uh, sort of I've been thinking about or has occurred to me is that you, in, in the climate of decreased clinical opportunity this is an opportunity for trainees to say well what do I not normally get time to do you know if I look at my CV where is it light is it research and audit do I struggle to keep up to date with my reading and could we create some more centralized programs so that people can dip into that Tom do you think as a trainee there'd be appetite for that I think there is. There's always an appetite for more centralised learning and particularly collaboratives. I think there's, there's certainly a, in terms of research and audit, I think there is a rise in the number of collaboratives that are, are happening and, and starting to happen, particularly with the COVID surge at work and things like that and working together. Um, I think that's valuable and I think we can achieve more if we do work together with different regions and different areas. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly uh, I think that is something that's going to increase uh, with time but I think it's something all most trainees would be interested in yeah I think you're right about the collaboratives you know um, there's certainly increasing ones in Scotland particularly in relation to sort of COVID and orthopedic and trauma papers and I've just certainly noticed a lot more trainees coming to me in the last few months saying you know looking for academic opportunities which is is I think a sign of trainees being quite proactive about managing their, their training, which is a credit to them as well. And um, James, again, with your TPD of Faculty of Surgical Trainers hat on, is there anything we can be doing better in relation to that or anything we ought to be looking for? Teaching-wise or academic-wise or both? Or Yeah, both. Yeah, yeah, both. I suppose, I think the thing with online teaching, again, I think you've got to be clear about what you're doing, haven't you? That I think Online teaching works really well when it's interactive and, and ideally, you know, based around cases and lots of changes of pace and changes of style. I think the ch and 
what's the big one of the big benefits is you you can record things but then the challenge of that is if you've got if you want people to interact someone like the st3 is sitting there thinking well actually i really want to have a go at this case but yeah. this is going to be recorded and put on the rotation website for the next 15 years i'm not sure right. i want to say anything and i think again you there's almost that division of actually there's the interactive teaching that's in-house and private and, and then actually there's also a role for getting experts nationally of actually, can you give a 15 minute non-interactive session that can be recorded and archived and it's held by the BOA or whoever it is. Yeah. And then people can just access that when they're, you know, actually the list's gone down because of COVID. Oh, I'm going to go and watch some of those really great screencasts and uh, catch up on a couple of things that I've been really struggling to, to think about. Academic wise, I think I completely agree. I think the collaborative research um, streams this causes great debate in the TPD world. And, and I think, I think yeah. there are some people who perceive this as, oh, it's the easy way out of, you know, you're just a bit part in a huge project. I would argue this should be the direction of travel. That, that from mm -hmm. a personal perspective, I would much rather one of our trainees contributed to a national project that recruits a thousand patients and actually answers a question yeah. and publishes yet another case series of 40 patients and concludes further research is needed in this area having spent goodness knows how many hours writing a paper and, and i think you know yes it's really impressive hard work but if we haven't actually answered a question is it useful work I think it's interesting that it's taken this to kind of get a real consensus, as you say, of a direction of travel towards that, because I think it's sort of increased academic activity and definitely more collaborative work has, is really a theme that's come out of this. And that is a, a sort of an unseen positive in COVID. James, as a TPD, do you think there's opportunity for us to be able to share this innovative practice that's going on across the UK? Yeah, I think Tom's example was a really good one. And I suspect there's lots of really innovative things going on all around the UK at the moment within orthopaedics in terms of trying to maximise trading opportunities. And I think if both and the BOA were uh, interested, I think both of those national meetings next year would be a really good forum to try and share some of those ideas and think about much as we've tried to look at how we can improve patient care how can we improve training as well with lessons from covid and try and see some of the positives from what's been a really difficult time well, I, th I think that's a great point it's something i think we're always looking to do in orthopedics is uh, sort of innovate and i think something we're maybe less good at is is not trying to reinvent the wheel sometimes and i think actually sharing practice across the UK and seeing what other people have done really well is a really good idea. Well, on that note, on that call to the BOA and BOTA, uh, and maybe the Faculty of Surgical Trainers, actually, James, <laughs> <laughs> then um, I will say thank you very much to my panel members. That's Tom Harding from the East of Scotland and James Tomlinson from Yorkshire. Guys, thanks so much again for giving up your time and joining us this evening. Uh, thank you for the invite. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Well, I'm going to wrap it up there, guys, because I think um, we're probably hitting the end of people's commute or their walk at the weekend or whatever to listen to this. But I think we've covered a lot of ground there. And I think in terms of the, the trainers, you know, we're, we're really asking the trainers to sort of discuss uh, and plan cohesively and um, to identify learning opportunities for trainees going forward and predict gaps in their training from this COVID period and facilitate how we can cover those gaps in future. And for the trainees, 
I think Tom, your examples have been really illustrative and um, James, I think you're absolutely right in that the trainees have been very proactive in terms of both their sort of giving to service and um, their uh, educational activities. And I think it's a, it is an opportunity for trainees to see this as, as an opportunity and a challenge rather than a negative and update your CV, see where you've got points to be gained and, and where there are uh, opportunity for academic gains. So Tom Harding from the East of Scotland and James Tomlinson from Yorkshire, thank you very much for having us. Thank you for the invite. Thank you. thank you. Thanks very much, guys. Bye-bye.